fourth chapter of John, we got down to about verse 10, um, thereabouts. But thinking about the condition here and who the Lord's talking to, in John 3, He spoke with Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So most likely one of the Sanhedrin, one of the 70 elders that elevated above everyone else that was there to guide and lead the children of Israel politically. He's an instructor and a teacher of the Jews. He's one that's looked to for his knowledge of the Scriptures and of the law. One that if there's a question that he would be approached. So really in John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to the the best of the best, the elite of the religious world. Those that were looked upon and admired by man for their spirituality, we'll say. We'll say it that way. We come to John chapter 4, the Samaritan. We've done a quick review of history, Bible history last time, and we'll be even quicker this time. Those northern ten tribes of Israel, when the kingdom split after uh, Solomon reigned, the northern ten tribes were carried away uh, in judgment by the king of Assyria. They never returned to the land. Now you're going to see the kingdom of Judah... That's Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. You'll see them return from Babylon. But those northern ten tribes, they never came back. And the king of Assyria put other nations and other people in their place in the land of Samaria. So they they weren't full-breed Jews. But when, when the kingdom of Judah came out of Babylon, you remember in Nehemiah and Ezra's day, they're rebuilding the temple and they're rebuilding the wall. These Samaritans, they want to join in. We believe in the God you believe in. We live here. We want to have part. And they were told, you have no part with us. You're not a Jew. And so there's where the separation started. But as the Jews looked, the Samaritans were a people that thought they had right to the Jewish lineage, but in reality they had no right to it. They were despised. They hated each other. The Jew hated the Samaritan. The Samaritan hated the Jew. They had no dealings. So half-breeds and those looked down upon by the, the real religious people. And on top of that, we're coming to a city in Samaria to a woman that is adulterous, had five husbands. The one she's with now is a husband to another woman So not just down to Samaria, but down to the lowest of the Samaritans. The worst of the worst. We've went from the top of the ladder to the bottom of the bucket. You see that? In one chapter. And so, what did Nicodemus need? He needed to be born again. What does this woman need? She needs to be born again. All have the same need before God. So he... He's weary with his journey. He sits down on the well of Jacob. And you know how the Jews were, and really by necessity. They held on to traditions and to the things of the Old Testament. Well, the Samaritans, they're going to do that as well. There's a piece of property that belonged to Jacob that he gave to Joseph. There's a well there that Jacob dug, that Jacob drank out of. And so that is part of their claim to righteousness 
completely separate from what the Word of God says. That's the way a majority of people are today. They're religious. They've got ties back into religion. But it's completely separate from the guidance of the Word of God. And we'll see more of that as we get into this. So Jesus is tired from His journey. Physically tired. It's the heat of the day. They've been walking. He sits down at the well. He sends His disciples into the city to buy some bread. And here comes this Samaritan woman. And she doesn't know Jesus is there. She's not looking for Jesus. She doesn't know who Jesus is as she approaches Him. She's going about her life as she had always went about it. This may have been her tradition to go to the well at 12 o'clock every day. She's not expecting anything to happen. She's going to do her job, get water, and maybe cook some supper. Maybe wash a load of clothes. Maybe prepare a bath. Whatever. But she's going to come and Jesus is going to meet with her completely unexpected to her. We see that in the book of Ruth as well. That Ruth goes to glean and she winds up in Boaz's field and the Bible says her hap was to light in a field of Boaz. That means chance is what the word means. And as you look at it through man's eyes, you look at it through this woman's eyes, what luck that it was that she came to the well and Jesus just happened to be sitting there. What luck that it was that Ruth left Naomi's side and went out to find a field somewhere to glean in. And the way it sounds, it sounds like there was a, a big field, maybe a hundred acre field. And they had it partitioned off. This field belonged, this portion belonged to this man, this portion belonged to this man. And they're out there reaping that barley. And Ruth, just by chance, picked out the one that belonged to Boaz. And as Ruth looks at it, she thinks, boy, that was luck. But if you've got any more spiritual knowledge than that, you'll see the provision of God working behind everything that goes on. God intended for Ruth to be in Boaz's field because Boaz was going to redeem her and God was going to make her the great-grandfather of King David. That was God's plan. And here... God had a plan. Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Jesus is going to meet with this woman right here at this moment. And this was new before the foundation of the world. As was our meeting with the Lord Jesus. Maybe we went to church like we always had. Maybe God drew us to church as He never had before. However the means was, it came at a time, I guarantee you, when we weren't looking for it. And as God began to deal, then we became interested. She's got no interest in who this is till He begins to speak to her. So He asks her for a drink, and she's floored. The Jews, you knew how they were with clean and unclean. We've already seen in John 2, they had to wash their cups, and they had to wash their platters and they had to wash the tables. They had to do all this every time before they ate anything. They were scared to death something unclean was going to touch them and they would be made unclean. Now here's a Jewish man sitting at a well and he's asking to drink from the cup of a woman. That's a Samaritan. 
Now, I, I realize we're disconnected in a lot of ways from the law, but if a Gentile touched a cup, he don't have to drink from it. If he touched it, the cup's unclean. It's got to go through ceremonial washing. If it can pass through the fire, it's to go through the fire before that's clean again and you're able to use it. So this floors her. How can you, a Jew, ask to drink out of my cup? Isn't that going to make you unclean? And Jesus' response in verse 10, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Jesus is turning the focus now on his mission and what he came to do. This is exactly what happened with Nicodemus. Nicodemus came and said, Look, we know you're a teacher from God. And Jesus, in a sense, cuts him off and says... Listen, Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom. What's Jesus doing? He's getting a focus where it needs to be. My mind, my heart, is it was not focused on being saved. As a matter of fact, that was the farthest thing from my mind. But isn't it amazing how the Lord begins to speak and that's, that's where your mind goes. But you see the problem with a carnal mind here we read, would have given thee living water. And we think water that's alive. But, I mean, you could say that. But also that word means moving water. It's not a swamp or a marsh or a pond that's stagnant. Nobody wants to drink out of that. But you know, if you go up Upper Shut in, Clear Branch, that spring, if you get down in there where the water's always moving, you can drink that. So he says living water, and her mind is down in that well. Now I realize she says the well is deep, it's been dug out, but the word well also means gushing. So at the bottom of this cave, this well, is a gushing spring that's been dug out. And she's thinking, you know, how is he going to get me this water? He has nothing to draw with. He's got no cup, he's got no rope, no bucket, no way to get the water, and her mind is still down there in Jacob's well. And that's the way man is. When you begin to talk, if you're just talking man to man about salvation and about a change from God, man goes to natural things. Well, I'm going to do better, and I'm going to believe, and I'm going to act right, and I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to be what I need to be in order to be saved. Now let me ask you, how far is that from what salvation is? What is salvation? It's a work of God. It's being born from above. It's the Holy Spirit regenerating and recreating the inner man of the heart. It's God bringing man out of sin into Himself and washing his sin away and making him a new creature. But you talk about salvation and it's, well, I'm going to do better. Man's mind is in a natural well. And Jesus is talking about a water that's from heaven. It does nothing to quench the thirst of the flesh. This water is not for the flesh. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? 
Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? So are, are you greater than Jacob? Jacob does this. This is Jacob's water that we're drinking here. Are you telling me you've got water that's greater than he is? And if that's true, and I would assume that this was the whale Jacob dug, that whale's been there for 1,500 to 2,000 years at this point, and it's still gushing. The city's still getting its water from it. Now, it's, that's pretty amazing. Are you greater than Jacob? Now, in just a day or two, the Jews are going to ask, are you greater than Abraham? So do you see how they, they trusting in lineage, in tradition, in family and in people? But the Samaritans, they don't go back to Abraham. They didn't have anything of Abraham's up there. All they had was Jacob. So it was to Jacob that they looked and they trusted in. Now, is Jesus greater than Jacob? Is what Jesus gives greater than the water that Jacob gives? But you see, we're, we're going to have a little standoff here. She's being standoffish. What are you talking about? Just as Nicodemus, are you saying that I've got to go back into my mother's womb? I'm an old man. How can I go back into my mother's womb? We're going to have to get the mind from natural to spiritual. Do you see that that's the work that you and I as people, we can't do that? We can teach the right things. We can go over it and go over it and go over it. I could coach my children and tell them salvation is God draws you, you come to an altar, you pray, and all they see in their mind is the outward action of that. And that's all man sees. Well, I've been to an altar and I've been baptized and I go to church and I'm a member and I'm a good person. The outward man. The work of God is what's missing so often. And so, uh, art thou greater than Jacob? Verse 13. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Boy, that's an easy thing to, to see, isn't it? You've come here today to draw water. How many days have you been here to draw water? You drank something this morning with breakfast. How many days in the past have you drank something? See, this water does not satisfy. All it is is for a moment. Is that not what the world is? Every You think and reason, every satisfaction that you've ever had in this life has been momentary and temporary and has eventually ran out. Something has happened and taken that satisfaction away. You've never been satisfied in religion. Man's trying to religion people in. And that works for a while and people are excited, but oh, after time it becomes grievous and a work. And the satisfaction is gone. But you keep coming back here to get a drink. 
But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So in in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 6, he's speaking here about the adulterous woman, the harlot, a picture of sin and the world and its drawing nature upon mankind, keeping man from coming to God. Lest thou shouldest ponder the path of life, her ways are movable, that thou canst not know them. Is life what we need for satisfaction? Is money what we need for satisfaction? Is family going to make us satisfied? Is vacation, is retirement, are any of these natural things going to truly satisfy our life? But you know what the, the world is in the carnal mind? The ways are movable. And we never figure out that there's no satisfaction in that. But today we need this and we're not satisfied, tomorrow we need this. Today we get, I don't care what kind of a raise you get, you can get 30% today. And you can feel it. When you look at your stub, you can see it. And in a month you'll say, boy, I'd like to have a little bit more. Never satisfied. But it's in such a way that man never notices that in those things, there's no satisfaction. Man continually thinks, if I could get a little more, if I could do a little more, if I could just get that, then I'd be satisfied. But look at it now. Every drink you've ever had, you've thirsted again. That's natural. And it always leaves us hungry or thirsty for more. But the water that Jesus gives, it's satisfying. It meets a need that never has to be met again. It's a, you see what he's saying? It's a one-time fix. If you drink of this water, you'll never be thirsty again. You'll be satiated. To be satiated. That's to be filled and there's no room for anything else. Now that would be good. But we're talking about something even better than that. It's not just to be satiated and there's no room for more, but it's going to be a well that's springing up and running over unto everlasting life. So in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 7, "...who needeth not daily..." as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. In Hebrews 10 verse 14, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost is a witness unto us. Jesus solution brings a permanent fix. 
Jesus says, here you'll never thirst. That word never means not at all or not ever. There's no need when a man drinks of this water to ever have a drink of it again. Isn't that wonderful? That when Jesus, and we're not talking about natural water, we'll cover that in another verse or two, but that the Lord Jesus brings a salvation and a washing and cleansing of sin and a peace between myself and God and God and myself that I never thirst for that again. But once a man receives the water from the Lord, he is forever saved. In chapter 3, Jesus says eternal life, everlasting life. And here, we've got never thirsting, but this water shall be. That's that word genomahi, to generate, cause to be, to become, to come into being. It wasn't there before. There wasn't a spring in me before. There wasn't water of life in me before. But by drinking the water of the Lord Jesus Christ, it caused a spring to be in me. So what is this spring? Well, he's going to say on over that he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, which had not yet come, for Jesus had not yet been glorified. So how can we have peace and satisfaction by coming to God one time for salvation? It's not by man and man's works. It's not the motion of coming to the altar that satisfies my thirst for salvation. It is the indwelling Holy Spirit of God that gives me peace day by day in my life that I could live in a desert, in a sinful world, and yet still have peace that my sins are forgiven. That's only in Christ Jesus. Shall never thirst, but the water I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. We're still natural. She's thinking, I want to drink of this water and then I won't have to worry about this well ever again. Now spiritually speaking, that's true. She's applying what Jesus said in the wrong way. But we can still learn from that. Jesus said you'll never thirst. And she's thinking, if I drink of this, I'll never have to come back to the well again. See, she's thinking the same thing that I'm saying. This is a a satisfaction that is permanent. Jesus is offering a permanent fix for thirst, but not the thirst that she's thinking of. We're going to have to get the focus on the right thing. How does Jesus turn Nicodemus' focus? He speaks of the Spirit. He speaks of a birth. He says it's not of the flesh. And Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus says, 
it's going to be like the serpent in the wilderness. He was lifted up. Those that looked to Him were delivered. It's in Christ that there's righteousness. Whosoever believeth not, he's already condemned. It's to bring attention to what the real need is. That's what's necessary for a man or a woman to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. There must be a recognition of the real need that's present. And that's what the Lord is going to do. Neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus saith unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that thou saidest truly. So how's the Lord going to bring about and turn her, her mind to what's really needed? He's going to bring up that she is a sinner. Is that not the first thing that we come to the realization of? That's the first place that God brings us to is that we are a sinner and in need of redemption. We are in danger of the judgment. And you know, as long as this woman's talking to a man that don't know who she is, don't know what's going on back home, don't know what she's like yesterday, don't know what she's been like today, well, he don't know my sin. It doesn't matter. But the Lord knows her sin. So he says, go call your husband, and she's going to lie about it. I'm going to cover that up. And to any other man, this would have worked, wouldn't it? If this were you, you wouldn't have knew any better. And you would have went along with her lie. And if, if we could have, we would have lied and squirmed our way out from under our sin just like we had our whole life. But you know the Lord, the Lord knows. He knows our heart. He knows our mind. We're not going to squirm away from His grip. So in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3, If our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost, whom the God of this world has blinded the minds. Jesus has been talking, and as you and I who know the Bible, we've heard the Bible, we've uh, got the whole New Testament to look at. We know exactly what the Lord Jesus is talking about as He's speaking with her about drinking. And yet here's a woman that He's physically speaking to with His voice and she can't see it. You know what's wrong? She's blind. The devil has blinded her mind that she can't see, but the law is going to come and the Holy Spirit is going to quicken her. Listen in Romans 7, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. She was alive all the way to the place that she said, I have no husband. Now listen, you ever drove by, you know you're speeding, there's a law man, and your heart kind of, I hope you don't come. That's just a natural reaction. You reckon that happened here? Go call your husband. 
there's, there's, she knows. She knows. There's a, maybe a split second thought. Maybe your heart jumped a little. And she lied. I have no husband. And if it had been any other man, that would have been water under the bridge. Life goes on. But the Lord Jesus, who knew her heart, who knew her mind, there was going to be no just squirming out from under the weight of her sin. I had, and me personally, I had been able to justify and wrangle around and lie through and cover up and, uh, and act different and all of these things in order to live with my sin and think that I was okay. And with any other man, I could get away with that. I could justify myself to the face of any other man. But when the Lord came, there was no more arguing with the Lord, was there? There was no lying to the Lord like I could lie to you. Like I could put on a show and pretend in front of the church or in front of the preacher. There was no more playing. There was no more lying. The Lord knew what I was and He's going to call me out on it. You've well said. So, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23... But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So the law has its purpose. The law still has its purpose. Its purpose is that really the elect, you can read Galatians and see it, I believe, if you'd be willing to. But the elect are shut up under the law just as the children were under tutors and governors and schoolmasters. You know what the children are doing in this day? They're going to school. They're learning. They're not ready at six years old to take over the family business. They're not ready at ten, are they? Son, you've got a lot left to learn. Ain't that the truth? So the children are shut up under tutors and governors and schoolmasters until the day they come to age, till they're ready. In the same manner now, we're shut up under the law till we come to the knowledge of our sin and we're ready and the Lord brings us out. So the Lord is right here. He's shutting her up in the law. What's she going to be able to argue about now? He's going to pin her down and pin her down tight. I have no husband. You remember the rich young ruler? Remember what he said to the Lord? The Lord gave him a few commandments. Keep these commandments. All these have I kept from my youth up. Do you believe he kept them all? Do you believe that he kept all those? Do you? You know what he done right there? He lied. Just like you lie. And I lie. Have you kept them all? 
Have you done good? Have you been good this week? As God's standard is good, have you been good? Don't lie. So, boy, you talk about shut up under the law. What am I going to say? Well, I'm going to tell you how good I am. Well, you're going to lie then. If that's what you're going to do, you're going to lie. And the Lord's going to prove that the man's a liar. Did he love his neighbor as himself? Well, son, if you love your neighbor like you do yourself, then it shouldn't bother you a lick to go sell what you got and give it to him. And he was sad. I can't do that. I don't love them like I love myself. He's a liar. And does not the Word of God say that all men are liars? We're all liars. There's really, we're under the control of our father, the devil, and our father, the devil, there's no truth in him. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And so, if it were not for the Lord, the Lord's intervention, the Lord's working among man, there'd be no truth among man. There wouldn't. It'd be deception. It would be lies. I would care more about what you thought but I could lie to you and hide it and never worry about it again. And that's what man does. Service after service, he lies, he covers up, he deceives, he puts on a show, he's ungenuine, he's a hypocrite, he's an actor, and in the heart there's nothing truly moving of God. It's all of man. That ain't worth five cents. Sir, I have no husband. Now it's well said, I have no husband. You said that very well. He's giving her some credit. She must have been a good liar. And man, by his nature, you know, when, when man's little, they can lie and you can see it. You can see that they're lying. Can't you? If you've ever experienced children and you know them, if they're yours, you can see them lying. You can see it in their face. But you know what they're going to do? They're going to practice that. And they're going to practice it. And they're going to get better and better and better. And that's what we do at church. We practice and we practice and we get better and better and we fool more and more people. But in the end, what have we done, really? Really, what have we done in the end of all that acting. You've well said, I have no husband, but it's not the truth. For thou hast had five husbands. Now, people tend to be pretty hard right here. Let's not be too hard. Had she sinned, she absolutely had sinned. Was she living in adultery? She was. Because she was presently with a man that was not her husband implying that that man was another woman's husband. He was married to another woman, yet he was with her. Was he guilty too? Yeah, he was guilty too. And so uncovering the sin that was present in her life. Now does this mean she can't be saved? Does this rule her out of salvation? Isn't it amazing that 
This is one example that John chose to write to us about in his gospel. No, it doesn't, ruler. Why would the Lord even speak with her? That's what the disciples are going to say. But they don't even know who she is at that time. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that thou saidest truly. You said that right. In Kings, 1 Kings 14 verse 2, uh, Jeroboam sends his wife to the prophet. But he says this, he says, now disguise yourself. Put on a, a, a garment, put on fake hair, uh, put on heavy makeup, and disguise your voice that he don't know who you are. And she walks in, and the man of God says, I hear the feet of the wife of Jeroboam. Was that his eyes? See, that's God revealing. It when Elijah was, the Israel was in battle and they said, that king said, every move that we do, they're, they're moving in front of us in every decision that I make. What's going on? We must have a spy. And he said, no, my Lord, Elijah the prophet's down there and he's telling them what you're going to do before you do it. But again, that wasn't Elijah. That was God revealing through him God speaking to him. But here, this, this is God himself revealing. But the problem is, Hebrews 4.13, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him whom we have to do. The Lord sees things as they are. If, I mean, you think, if, if you know the truth, if you know what really happened, and I come and tell you a lie, what does that make you say? You ever had that happen to you? You know what happened. Maybe you've seen what happened. Somebody comes with a story... I mean, I say, what about a man lie like that? Ain't that what you would say? That was a lie. He made that up. So the Lord, the Lord knows all things. When you lie to the Lord, it's like lying to somebody that already knows of no value and of no profit. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So he has called out her sin. He's called out her life and laid it out in her face. And she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. You must be a man. That's an inspired speaker. Now remember, she's a Samaritan. She don't know who he is. She don't know what he's done. She don't know He's the Messiah. Even if she had heard of Jesus being born in Bethlehem or the stories of that had gotten around, she, don't rec she doesn't recognize who He is here anyway. But by this revelation, I perceive that God must be working in you. The truth has been revealed. 
But again, you know what we're going to do? We're going to distract from the issue that's at hand. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. So this was Mount Gerizim. This was a mountain in uh, Samaria. That's where the Samaritans went to worship. In Genesis 33.18, you're going to see it. And Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padanaram, and pitched his tent before the city. And he bought a parcel of a field. So there's the field that Jacob bought. Where he spread his tent, the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of silver. And he erected there an altar and called it Elohe Israel. So Jacob, here's his land that he bought. Here's this mountain. Here's an altar that Jacob built. And this is the place where the Samaritans are going to worship. The reason they worship there is because they were rejected from building the temple. So what does man say? Well, I'll build my own. That's just as good as anybody else's. So she says, look, our fathers have always worshipped in this mountain. This is where we go to offer our sacrifices. This is where we go to praise God. But your people say that man ought to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus is going to answer that. Uh, In Deuteronomy 12, why was it Jerusalem? But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put His name there, even unto His habitation shall you seek, and thither thou shalt come. So in Deuteronomy, they still hadn't went into Canaan's land at this point. And they're camping at the edge. Moses is going over the law. And this was God's commandment. The place where God chooses, that's where you're going to worship God at. In 1 Chronicles 21, 26, And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord. And he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offering. 1 Chronicles 22, Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God and this is the altar of burnt offering. In 2 Chronicles 6, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. Why did the Jews say Jerusalem was the place to go? Because that's the place that God chose. Does that matter? Can the Samaritans just go build their own altar of worship and that be okay? See, that's the way man thinks. God chose this as the means to come to God. God chose that by the Spirit through the Gospel would be the means that man would come. God chose that uh, when man's saved, he's added and becomes a part of the church of the living God. And man says, well, I don't want to do that. I'm going to build my own altar and I'm going to worship God my own way separate from all of that. So that's what the Samaritans had done. They had come up with their own religion and in doing so had ignored everything that God had already said. Now, is God accepting that? He's not. Is God accepting anybody else's? He's not. 
there's one means, there's one way that man can approach unto God. So she's asking the question. Jesus is going to give an answer. Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what. We worship, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So she's going back now to their altar, their sacrifice, really another question for the Lord. And the Lord says, the day's coming and now is. You're going to see this in John in the next chapter especially. So it's right now, it's at hand. It's, it's not a thousand years out. This day's right present at us that it's not going to be at Jerusalem nor is it going to be in this mountain. So what was the temple? The temple was the seat where God dwelt. God dwelt in the holiest of holies between the two cherubs above the mercy seat inside the back of the temple. If man was going to access God, if man was going to offer thankfulness to God, if man was going to uh, atone for his sin, if there was going to be any worship, if there was going to be any praise, you came to the temple. That's where God was. That's where God met with man. But the day's coming that the temple is not going to be the means for you to access God. So, I mean, you talk about a big change. You worship, you know not what. You don't know what you're worshiping. The Jews, they knew what they worshiped. So what's he talking about there? What's based in Scripture and what's made up by man? If we don't have Scripture to back up and support what we believe and what we stand on, then what are you standing on? You see that? It's either the Word of God and it's the truth and this is what I believe and this is why I believe it because the Bible says or it's, well, I believe this and it's contrary to the Bible. Yeah, but Jacob believed this. Jacob's children believed this and even that's a lie. Jacob did not worship at Mount Gerizim because that was the place where everybody ought to worship. That was a place in his journey that he built a, a place, an altar, to offer unto God. And so here she says, which place is it? Jesus says, neither place. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Now we know that's true because you go all the way back to Abraham. As God chose Abraham out of his home country and said, through you all the nations of the world 
are going to be blessed. We know He chose Isaac as well. We know that as Isaac had Jacob and Esau, we know that God chose Jacob. We know that on down the line, God chooses David. We know that on past David, He chose Zerubbabel. And there's many more that I'm skipping over. But God had chose the lineage and the seed and the people that the Lord Jesus was going to come from. He was going to come from Abraham's lineage. That's what God said. So the Jews are worshiping God. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. It's from the Jews that salvation is going to come to all the world. Not because of what the Jews are doing, but because through their lineage, Jesus was going to come. The hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. True worshipers. So what what is a, a true worshiper? It would be one, I, I would think this, and I think I think you would agree. A true worshiper is one that is not a hypocrite. He's not acting, he's not pretending, but he is somebody that is truly worshiping. And if somebody is going to truly worship, then it must be in spirit and in truth. So in Joshua 24, verse 14, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. Don't come with a lie. Don't come to Jesus and say, Well, I've not done too bad this week. Don't come to Jesus and say, Well, I've kept all these from my youth up. Don't come and tell a lie. Don't try to offer a lie to God and don't try to feed a lie to the church. That's of no value to you. And that is not God. He is not worshipped by a lie. You know who's going to get worshipped by lying? I am. I'm lying to you because I want to be exalted. I want you to think higher of me. Now you tell me, is that worshiping God? Man's pitiful outside of the Word and the work of God. He's pitiful. The, The lengths that he goes to exalt himself is sickening. When true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So no hypocrisy, no lying, but truth really all the way out of the inward part. And in the spirit, as the Holy Ghost stirs and works in the inward man. This is the same spirit back in John chapter 3 that he told Nicodemus of. The Spirit of God, as the Holy Spirit works in man, that is the new way that God is worshipped. You're not coming down to the temple and offering a goat to God to worship Him anymore. Now God is going to be worshipped without hypocrisy 
and under the leadership and power of the Spirit of God. And it's not at the temple that we go to kill our goat and be accepted, but we offer this spirit and truth worship through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our new access to God. Ephesians 2.18, For through Him, through Jesus, we both have access, both Jew and Gentile, have access unto God by one Spirit. The Spirit is the means that our worship comes to God through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all know this in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. If you're coming to worship, if you're coming to give, I mean, the most honorable thing I can think of in man's eyes, to give a big sum of money, I'm going to come give God $50,000 down at the church this morning. And man is amazed at the gratitude. And man's exalted by that. But it's not through those things that God's approached, but it's only in the Lord Jesus Christ that the Father is worshipped. So you worship you know not what. In 2 Kings 17, so these nations feared the Lord and served graven images, both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers, so do they unto this day. So this is Second Kings 17. This is him speaking of the nations that the king of Assyria had brought in to inhabit Samaria. They feared the Lord and served graven images. That's in the book. That is Second Kings 17.41. Tell me how that works. How can I fear the Lord... That's Jehovah. That's the God of heaven. And serve graven images. It's a lie, isn't it? It's a lie. So, do we lie when we worship God? Are we lying? Are we lying to ourselves? we trying to lie to man? we trying to lie to God? Have we really worshipped God with that? He only accepts worship in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. In Ezekiel 22, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap. I found none. In Isaiah 59 as well, you'll read in the first several verses, there's iniquities and sins that have separated from God. They've went away from God. And then you've got verses talking about just how wicked that these people were. What's the solution to that? Verse 16, He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore His arm brought salvation and His righteousness sustained Him. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should shew forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So does it mean that God is continually looking for somebody good enough to worship Him? If that was the case, would God ever find anybody? 
You've got a few places in the book that searches are made. Revelation 5, probably the most popular. The heavens, the earth, and beneath the earth were searched, and there was no man found worthy. In Ezekiel, where I just read, he's looking through the people and saw that there was no man. It's that way in Ezekiel and in Isaiah. So no, God's not looking for man trying to find one that's doing good enough. But through the Lord Jesus Christ, as He says in Peter, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, that ye should shew forth the praises of Him who called you out of darkness. How is there people that are worshiping God today? God sought them out. God called them. God brought them to Himself. And you leave out the work of God. You've, you've, left, out, you've left out everything. 